0: you find your seats and uh, let's go uh, to the book of Mark and uh, we are in the book of Mark chapter 12 and if you don't have a Bible uh, we want you to have one so our ushers are coming around you can get their attention you get a copy there you can follow along with us on the Bible app I can think of no uh, better thing to do on a freezing cold day than to kind of cozy up with God's Word next to God's people and uh, we are in Mark chapter 12 and uh, this is actually a kind of part two from last week, and so just want to bring you up to speed, just recap just a little bit. We were uh, looking at these religious leaders that are coming up to Jesus, and they're questioning Him. It's not just questioning Him, they're really rejecting His authority. They don't want to listen to Jesus, they don't want anything to do with Him, but um, they're kind of afraid of what the people might say, what the people might think, and so Jesus told uh, told us this parable uh, about the tenants of a vineyard who uh, beat and killed the servants that the owner kept sending. It just kept happening over and over until finally they ended up killing the owner's son. And uh, verse 12 uh, ended there. They were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he'd told the parable against them. Uh, They got it. So they left him and went away. So we've, we're, we're, we're picking up in this tension that's been building really through the whole book, but especially since back in chapter 3, in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus walked into a synagogue on a Sabbath day and he healed a man who had a withered hand. You remember that? He walks in on a Sabbath day and heals him. And because of that, back in chapter 3, it said that the Pharisees immediately went out and they held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him so they want Jesus dead and they've got to find a way here finally he's right here in the temple they're trying to find a way to arrest him or or start a smear campaign or 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 get an assassination attempt whatever it's going to take to take this guy out but the problem is um, they're not in charge Rome is still in charge remember that They're the ones that kind of rule over their nation, but here in Jerusalem is is this important group of people called the Sanhedrin. The the Sanhedrin, you could think of it kind of like the Jewish Supreme Judicial or Administrative Council. They got like 71 men that are in this group, and they meet right here in the temple, and whatever they say is binding on all of the Jews, But but they're uh, kind of limited in their power politically because uh, Rome is still in charge. and so so there's different groups, different parties of of the Jews that kind of make up the sanhedrin. and here in chapter twelve they're going to send some of those uh, different groups in they're really going to send in some snipers. You know, you almost almost think of this kind of like uh, if, if someone was out on the campaign trail. And they're going into kind of a, a hostile and, and volatile environment and, and their, the, their, their enemy is just going to come and start pelting them with questions, one right after the next. They're trying to catch him and make him slip up and take him out. And so in chapter 12, we're going to see three different questions coming one at a time. we got some Q&A with, with Jesus. So I think obviously we're going to learn from the words of Jesus. We want to listen to what Jesus says. We're going to learn from him. But, but I also think that we can learn from the bad example of these religious leaders that are asking him the questions. Because these guys really have an attitude of, you're not the boss of us. You're, you're not the authority. We don't, we don't have to listen to you and... So I think we can learn from their failure. We can learn this. Here's a big idea this morning. This is the the biggest thing that I think we learn from them. Submitting to Christ is always better. You know that? I know last week we talked about uh, the importance, kind of the negative side of it, not submitting to Christ. I want to be an encouragement to you today. And I want to convince you again that that God's way is best. And, And submitting to him is really what you want, Okay? And so we're going to look at these questions. Here's the first one. We're looking, starting in verse 13. We got three Q&A with Jesus, uh, starting in verse 13. Here's what happened. They, the Sanhedrin, sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher... Remember, they're they're not being really sincere here, so they kind of got like a snide attitude when they say this. Uh, We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, bring me a coin, and let me let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and whose inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Here's the first. Q and A takeaway. I have got three takeaways. Here's one: When you submit to Christ, you put politics in perspective. This is gonna be fun, isn't it? So, so, so here we have these these Pharisees, um, and and. Herodians. I just got to tell you, that's kind of a weird alliance, all right? These guys are not friends. The Herodians are really kind of sympathetic to Rome. Pharisees, not so much, okay? These guys don't really get along, and so, 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 so it's pretty interesting that they would, they would join forces and team up, and the reason they're doing that is because they have a common enemy. That's the only reason that's bringing them together. They want to take out Jesus, and so uh, they come it says, asking him questions, the text says, to trap him in his talk. That, that word, to trap, really just means to kind of catch him unaware, like they're trying to hunt him down. It's kind of an ominous, uh, ominous tone that's right here. And I think it actually uh, colors uh, this question that they ask in verse 14. They They call him teacher, which, okay, that's like false respect. They don't really respect him like this, but they say, say you're true, and, and, and you don't care about anybody's opinions. You're not swayed by appearances, and you truly teach the way of God. Really, that's just slick flattery is all it is. It's kind of ironic though, like um, they're trying to flatter him, but saying at the same time, like, you don't care. About anybody's opinion, you're not really swayed. Does that make sense? doesn't really make sense. Uh, but here's, here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So we're just going to jump right into this polarizing political debate. And whenever you get into politics, we're going to get somebody mad, right? So that's kind of the point. Like, let's, let's get somebody mad at this guy. And what better way to do it than mixing politics and money? Does the government have the right to reach into your wallet. It's kind of a hot topic. It was for them too, especially considering the fact that they've... uh, uh, under the domineering rule of this foreign empire it's not like they're big fans of the government that's ruling over them and so so here's the deal if if Jesus is to give his support to Roman taxation then you know obviously that that would help maintain or jump start a political career but as far as your popularity and your influence among the Jews you can pretty much kiss that goodbye right if Jesus comes out and tells all these Jews that they need to pay their taxes, then in their minds, hopefully, nobody's going to want to listen to him anymore. But at the same time, if he, if he comes out and he tells the Jews to stop paying their taxes, well, then he's going to be in hot water with the Romans. So don't, don't think that they're going to look too highly on um, somebody who's trying to be a revolutionary, right? Like, you want to you start a revolt? Okay, you're dead. Like, that's kind of what they're hoping for. So really, in this moment, this is, this is kind of a, a lose-lose for Jesus. Like, how is he supposed to get out of this? These, these guys are they're professionals. They know what they're doing, don't they? I mean, it, it, it doesn't work the same like it did out in Galilee. These, the, these guys have been around the block. They, they're, 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 they're the big boys right here, right? And you've got to know how to play the game in Jerusalem. And so as soon as this comes out of their mouth, I'm, you know, if you're, the, if you're the disciples, you might be thinking, like, maybe, maybe we should get an attorney. Maybe like we, we should, like, check with somebody before we speak. But Jesus doesn't uh, plead the fifth. He just jumps right into it. And, and I think all of us are actually listening in on this question because we're sitting here too. This is kind of intriguing for us. Are we required to submit to the government? Well, it says that Jesus, um, knowing their hypocrisy, like he knows exactly what's going on. He knows why they're coming to him. He sees uh, right into their heart uh, behind this question. He says, why put me to the test? That word is the same word that Mark used for Satan tempting Jesus back in chapter 1. They're trying to take him off mission, but it's not going to happen. So he says, uh, bring me a denarius. I've got a, I've got a picture of a denarius here for you. I want you to be able to see this because it's really a visual lesson. This is object lesson time. He says, says bring me a denarius, and, and, and whose likeness, whose image, and whose inscription do you see here? That's it's not a trick question. He's really genuinely asking. And if it's, if it's Caesar's, then he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Yes, you have to pay your taxes. In this moment, what Jesus is doing is, is, is he is holding up human government as legit. And following after him does not mean revolting against and, and trying to overthrow your governing and political authorities. He's not promoting anarchy. He says, give to Caesar if it's, if it's his. But then he goes one step further and he says, and to God the things that are God. So think about this. If, if, if that bears the image of Caesar, we are made in the image of God. Genesis chapter one, God made man in his image. And so if we bear the image of God, then who do we belong to? Who is our ultimate authority? You see that? And so here's what he's trying to say to us. Jesus is he's not saying that that, that he has nothing to do with, with government, that, that that's just like a completely separate entity, and like don't even want to don't even want to touch that. What he's saying is you need to submit to that. But there's a higher authority. And when you submit to God, it puts politics into perspective. And so the, the early church was trying to wrestle with this and, 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 and really come to grips with it. Here's what, here's what Paul says, Romans chapter 13, verse 1. I got it for you on the screen. I want you to see this. Here's, here's the command. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So God is sovereign, and he's the one who put our government in place. He's the one who put our president in place. Who put our Congress and our Supreme Court justices, he put them here. So he said, we have to submit to him. He said, okay, 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 yeah, yeah, but, but what, what if what if our government is corrupt? Like, I, I know it's hard for you to imagine that that would be possible, but but you've probably seen that at some point, like, what... You don't understand, like, they're, they're awful, or, or, or whatever I feel about them. And so, so in this, you know, is, is that like, like, do we have to submit if, if they're, if the government is corrupt? Um, do you think Rome wasn't? I mean, it's not going to take you long in the history books to really, like, look through and what kind of a government, they did some awful stuff. So, so Jesus is not upholding the Roman Empire as some idealistic form of government. Like, they got it right, so you got to submit to them. No, he knows that they are corrupt. But he also knows, and he also tells us, that God instituted it. God put it here. This became really clear to the early church. Which is why Paul said, be subject to the governing authorities. Then Peter said this, 1 Peter chapter 2. You see this on the screen. Peter said, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Human government under God's sovereignty is his design. And it was his design from the beginning. This is how he meant for his world to be. We we, we see this in Genesis chapter 1. I've got this one. I want you to see this. This This is the text that we call the creation mandate. Keep in mind, this is before sin. This is Adam and Eve. God is commanding them. He's commanding us. Here's what he says. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion. Over all the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God is telling us we are to have dominion over the earth. You say, what in the world does that mean? It means this. God made everything. He's in charge, right? But he has entrusted it into our care. We're the ones that are supposed to take care of this. And when we do, we are representing God's rule here on earth. That's exercising dominion. And, ex- and it extends to everything that we do here. It extends to uh, you know, what, we, what we grow and, and, and what we build and, and how we make and manage our finances and structuring societies and building cities and making culture and making the arts and forming and maintaining governments and laws. It, it extends to all of that. and so, so, so what we do here is supposed to represent God's rule on earth. Which means, if you follow with me, uh, it, it means how we rule matters. Doesn't it? So then, I think we can and should use whatever gifts and talents and influence and opportunities that we have to shape our government and how we rule. Which kind of struck me this last week what a sweet thing it is that we would have an opportunity to vote and to speak into this, wanting to influence the way we shape our government to better represent God's rule on earth. And you veterans that we're celebrating this weekend, those of you who serve and help uphold and maintain justice. God's designed this. He oversees that. I was like, what a a sweet opportunity our church has. I mean, honestly, if if we pulled everybody in here and we asked, like, how many of you are working for or with the government in any capacity, pretty sure it's a lot. We have an opportunity here to try to shape this in a way that's gonna better represent the rule of God. But, because we're living in a, a sinful, fallen world at best, the system's going to be broken. Fair? But God put it here. So when, when we uh, submit to the government's authority, it's because we're really submitting to a higher authority. You see that? And I want to help you understand this. That this actually works out better for us. Because one, we won't get distracted from our mission. We are here to make disciples. And the gospel certainly informs our politics, and so we can. We should be thinking biblically, I want I, I want to wrestle with these things, and I want to promote the values of his kingdom, but we don't have to get caught in the weeds of every single political issue and prioritize our causes that we would forget the mission to faithfully and clearly articulate the gospel to a world that needs Jesus. I want to make sure we get right on that. So we're going to stay on mission when we're submitting to Christ. And, and then secondly, um, we can trust him. We never have to freak out. We never have to panic. Uh, we, we don't bear the full weight of trying to save society. We don't, we don't ever have to give up hope or, 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 or despair in the way that things are going. We can, we can pray. We can pray humbly. We can pray boldly. We can work we can work effectively and expect results. We can obey and submit conscientiously, knowing that really we're submitting to God's word as our ultimate authority. And then we can breathe easy, trusting in his sovereignty, that he is in control. God put the government in place for our benefit to kind of promote good and, and punish evil, which is the point that Paul's making in Romans chapter 13. But... Where governments fail, our God does not. And so when you submit to Christ, it actually helps us put politics into perspective, helps us re- remember we, we belong to Him. I'm going to give myself to Him and I get to celebrate and share the good news of His kingdom. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God. The things that are God's. And with that response, the text says they marveled at him. So that's question number one. Let's move on to question number two here. Uh, question number two, that was, the, that was the Pharisees. Verse 18 now, uh, moving to the Sadducees' turn. It says, the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That's kind of the rule. That's the way it works. So, here's a scenario. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. So in the resurrection, assuming that there is a resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, "'Is is this not the reason you are wrong? "'Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. "'For when they rise from the dead, "'they neither marry nor are given in marriage, "'but are like angels in heaven.'" As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Here's the second takeaway. Ready? When you submit to Christ, you have eternal hope. You have an eternal hope these Sadducees uh, come up to Jesus. And just so you kind of get that, that backstory, those uh, Sadducees are kind of a, a sect of Jew, Judaism. And uh, these guys pretty much only uh, look to the, the book of Moses. So the, really the first five books uh, of Scripture, Genesis through Deuteronomy, what we know as the Pentateuch or the Torah. They only really accept those as authoritative. And so it's because of that that Mark tells us that these Sadducees say there is no resurrection. Nobody really rises from the dead, which is why the Sadducees are so sad, you see. Thank you. So so, so, so um, they think in this moment that they've got this perfect if-then scenario, this, this kind of hypothetical situation that's really going to prove that the resurrection is just some silly, made-up doctrine. It's not there, there really is no life after death, which is kind of a big deal considering the fact that Jesus himself has predicted three times already that he is going to rise from the dead. So they're hoping to make Jesus look ridiculous. So they've got this scenario verse 20. There were seven brothers. God bless that mom. But but in instead of seven brides for seven brothers, you have one bride for seven brothers and all God's people said, "Gross." <laughs> That's like weird, isn't it? Like we, okay. Praise God, this is just a hypothetical situation, but this kind of thing happened, and there was, there was a rule for this in Deuteronomy chapter 25 uh, that, that, that if a husband died and he didn't have any kids, then his brother would marry the wife so that, so that uh, they could have a child and carry on the brother's name and the property rights, trying to just keep it in the family, which was a really big deal in their society, okay? So here's the scenario. We've got seven brothers, one bride... No kids, and now they're all dead. It's kind of a raw deal. So they say, um, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? She was married to all of them. Now, the, the reason they're asking this question is not because they've suddenly uh, uh, jumped on board uh, the resurrection train. Uh, it's, it's, it's really they're just trying to say, like, this, this is absurd. How does this even work? And I love Jesus' response. He says, you are wrong. You don't know the Scriptures. You don't know the power of God, which is kind of a heavy accusation for a bunch of guys that are supposed to be priding themselves on their interpretation of Scripture, right? He says, when they rise, and they will, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. What he's trying to say is, it doesn't work the same there and then as it does here and now. It's kind of a different thing. They will be like angels. And he's not saying that they're going to sprout wings and start floating around with halos on their heads. What, what he's saying is it, when, when you are raised from the dead, it's going to be a different type of existence in the afterlife. Like you can't even really comprehend what that's going to be like right now. But as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, I love that he, he actually points back to the scripture that he knows that they're going to accept. Like, oh, like that's authoritative. Remember, remember Moses and the burning bush? You guys remember that story? Do you, do you remember that? What was it that God said? God said, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. So he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. But by, by, by the time Moses is on the scene, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are long gone, right? Like they, they, They've been dead for a long time. But apparently Jesus knows something that the Sadducees don't, that they're actually still alive. I mean, why uh, why, why, would God call himself, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to refer to myself as the God of a couple of dead guys that lived a really long time ago. That's not, it's kind of a lame, unimpressive title. Like, I could think of all sorts of other things that I would want to call myself to instill fear into people that... He's not talking about them in the past tense. Like, well, well, I, I was there, God. God has a covenant relationship with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. He made promises to them. And that doesn't stop just because they died physically. It's not like, well, I would have kept my promises if they'd have stuck around, but, but they, didn't, they didn't make it. Well, they are alive spiritually right now. And God's promises still stand because death cannot put an end to the promises of God. So he says to them, love this, you are quite wrong don't want Jesus saying that to you, okay? But, but, but these, these Sadducees, they don't want to submit to Jesus. But here's the really sad part. Without him, they have no hope. Don't you know that once you turn to Christ and stop saying, you're wrong, and say, no, you're, you're right. And you submit to him because you realize you need him to save you from your sins. That he gives you an eternal hope. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Reality is that you and I someday are, we're going to die. I know that's not really pleasant. It's not really fun to think about. But because Jesus died in our place, and he died for our sins on the cross, We don't have to fear death anymore. It doesn't have to keep us up at night. Because we're going to live with him for all eternity. James Edwards said it this way, that Jesus does not simply announce the resurrection. He is the resurrection. You were dead in your sins, Ephesians tells us. But God made us alive together with Christ. Amen? That's eternal hope. That's why submitting to Christ is always better. So let's look at the third question now. The Pharisees come, the Sadducees come, verse 28. Now we get a scribe. One of the scribes came up and heard them Disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that, that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and all your strength and to, and to love one's neighbor as yourself, well, that's much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. q and A's is over. But here's the last takeaway. Note this. When you submit to Christ, you live out love. So we've got a a, a scribe, the text says, that came, heard, and seeing that he answered well. So he becomes an eyewitness to the authority of Christ. And he asks this question, not really... Not really with nefarious motives like, like the other guys did. He kind of seems to be uh, genuine and sincere in asking the question. And so the interchange that he has with Jesus is a lot different than the other guys. Do you know that Jesus welcomes your questions? Do you know that? He said, wait a minute, like, I thought last week we said that, that, that questioning him was dangerous. Well, I hope you see the difference here. That the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these religious leaders, are only questioning him, the text said, verse 13, was to trap him. Because they've already rejected him as authority. They don't don't want to listen to him. And so if you're just looking to stockpile ammo for your arguments so that you can justify rejecting Jesus, well, God sees right through that, okay? But, but, But it's okay to come when you're wrestling with something. I got questions, and I want to know. And I, I want to understand here, I think this scribe is coming honestly and, and he's asking with this intent to really listen and to understand And So he asks the question, which commandment is the most important of all? I just want you to notice, Jesus answers him. Because he wants you to know him. He's not playing hard to get. And this question just goes right to the bottom line. So, so here, what he was asking is, which, which commandment is the most important? So, 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 so if, if, if we're going to submit to God, And just help me, help me. Big picture here. Can you just sum that up? And and Jesus uh, immediately answers with, The Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the most important scripture to the Jews. Every Jew knows this. In fact, I got kind of cornered by a man in a synagogue in Israel uh, when I was there earlier this year, and and he kind of was asking me if I was Jewish, and and I don't even know how we got into the conversation, but he started asking me about this. And i got to tell you, I don't know much Hebrew, but you got to know this. Everybody has to know this. Shema, Yisra'el. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And as soon as he said, hear, O Israel, I think everybody in that room probably started kind of quoting it right along with him. As as if I would stand up here and say, for God so loved the world that he, and everybody just kind of starts quoting it because we all know it. Everybody knows this. He is our God, and he is the only God. And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. But then Jesus adds as well, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. See, submission to God's commands is demonstrated by love. And so the scribe turns to Jesus and says, you're right, teacher. And I love that there's no, yeah, yeah, but. He's not arguing. He actually starts to connect the dots. He says, yeah, like, if you love God and, and, and you love your neighbor, that's much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This guy's starting to get it. That God is after our hearts. Not just rituals and rules. God wants all of us, not because we have to, like we're living out of duty, but because we want to give him everything. It's our delight. We are living out of love for him. It's got to be true on the inside. And when it is true on the inside, you will live out love for others. And so Jesus, when he saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom. That doesn't mean he's, he's not saying, you know, try just a little bit harder. You're like, you're almost there. He gets it because you first have to realize that it's about your heart. Not your resume. Not a scorecard. You will never live up to the holiness of God. But once you try, stop give up trying to make yourself right before God, by following all the rules. And you simply put your trust in Him. You let Him make you right before God. I I just hope that we get this, okay? We're not after submission to a bunch of rules. I hope that's not what you hear every time you come here. It's like, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that. We want it to come from our hearts a love for Christ so that we would we just get on our knees and say God I want to submit to you I'm I'm, I'm doing this joyfully because I want to give you everything that I have and I, I'm I'm, I'm going to be honest with you I've been feeling lately in my own life that, that sometimes I'm my heart just doesn't feel warm and and Maybe I'm just kind of going through the motions. You feel that? You know what I'm talking about? One of the things that I've been uh, thinking through and was encouraged to go back, just go back to the gospel. It's the only thing that could change that. That we love because he first loved us. So I've been thinking about that in my prayer time. Because I don't want to just go through the motions with God. I want it to be true in my heart, on the inside, that he has everything, and I want to submit to him. So can I ask you, how's how's your heart? I feel a little cold, maybe going through the motions just a little bit. And check for a pulse. I just want to be a church that is passionately in love with Christ. So that when we say, hey, here's what God's word says. Here's what he expects of us. We joyfully get on our knees and submit and say, you got everything. Father, I I pray that even right now, um, maybe there's some of us that, I'm feeling this. Lord, there are days where uh, I know I need to submit to you. but I want to feel something. I don't don't want it to just be going through rituals and and doing the same thing, saying the same thing every day, but not meaning it. God, would you uh, forgive us of that? I pray that you would stoke the fire of our heart again, knowing that the only way that happens is when we look to the cross and we see that, man, I am loved by you, and there's nothing that I could do that would change that. You love me so much and there's nothing that I have done that would make you stop loving me. Praise God. So we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. I pray that we would be a church that submits to you, submits to your word, longs to be like you. God, I pray that our our worship is genuine from the heart. and That we would submit because we want to. We love you, God. We declare that you are awesome. There is no God like you. And so even now, we sing your praise. We want to ascribe the glory that is due your name from people that really love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.